Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, the podcast that accidentally terraformed the wrong planet, and now you have to pay taxes to giant dung beetles. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my new novel, The Terraformers, comes out January 31st. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer and comic book writer. You can pick up some issues of New Mutants right now that I wrote. Plus, in April, you can get Promises Stronger Than Darkness, the final volume in my young adult space fantasy trilogy. Today, we're going to talk about fiction that takes place on other planets and what it takes to create a believable world along with a believable planetary society. That's exactly what my new novel, The Terraformers, is all about. So we're going to be talking about how I mixed scientific realism with rank speculation to create the planet Saski, which will probably be terraforming 60,000 years from now, since I am a wizard and can predict the future. Also on our mini-episode next week, we'll be answering some of your most burning writing questions. So tune in for that. Speaking of which, did you know that if you support us on Patreon, you get a mini episode every other week in the gaps between our regular episodes, and you get to keep this podcast going because this podcast is entirely supported by you, our listeners. We're an independent podcast. That's right. And if you support us on Patreon, you get access to our Discord channel where we just hang out and talk all the time. Yeah. Think about it. All of that that amazing community and all that extra content could be yours for just a few bucks a month. And anything you give goes right back into making our opinions that much more correct. So check us out at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. And now let's jump in. So, Annalie, I've read The Terraformers, and I love this book like more than I can possibly say. It is the book I desperately needed right now. But for those of us who haven't read it yet, you know, what is this book about? Well, thank you for your super unbiased review of this book. <laughs> it's super unbiased. <laughs> I'm um, a book critic. You actually, you are a book critic, um, not actually allowed um, professionally to review this book because <laughs> of your slightly personal relationship with the author. But, um, you know, the, the thing about this book is that I started writing it because I really wanted to imagine a better world, but I didn't want it to be perfect. I didn't want to create some kind of utopia or something that felt like it was so polished that it couldn't happen. So that's why I chose to focus on terraforming as a topic, because terraforming is kind of an inherently problematic process, pretty much no matter how you do it. It's, it's really the process of coming to a planet that already exists and trying to turn it into a place that people can live on. And in the case of the terraformers, I focused on the workers who are on the planet. The planet has, when the book starts, it's already been kind of, the atmosphere has been built. And so they're really just building the life on the planet, the ecosystems. And it focuses on a woman named Destry, who is a network analyst for a group called the Environmental Rescue Team, who are kind of like 
the first responders and environmental scientists of the future, like, all rolled into one. Like, they respond to disasters, but they also study the environment so they can prevent disasters. And Destry's out with her trusty steed, the moose Whistle, and Whistle oh my can God. talk. I love Whistle. Whistle is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, everyone who's read the book so far has fallen in love with Whistle. Whistle is a amount, but also a person. And he can talk through a texting device embedded in his brain. So he looks and talks like a moose, like he makes moose noises, but then he can text you and, and send you um, messages into your brain if you're wired up, uh, like all of these future characters are. So Destry and Whistle are out on a routine mission, just checking the boreal forest, trying to figure out um, if anything's going wrong. And they stumble on something that is really surprising. And they basically uncover, this is not a spoiler, they uncover uh, a city that isn't supposed to exist underneath a volcano. And at that point, Destry is kind of torn between doing work for the environmental rescue team, which is supposed to just keep the planet in a pristine condition for this company that owns it and that is a kind of real estate de development firm that, you know, goes across the stars and <laughs> develops land. But she also feels real loyalty to the people she meets. And so she has to make this really momentous decision about how to deal with this contradiction between keeping the planet pristine, obeying the orders from her corporate overlords, and honoring these people who she's just met who have made this kind of pirate city. And the thing that's really fun about the book for me and hopefully for readers is that we see Destry make this incredible decision. We see very violent and upsetting fallout from that decision immediately. But then we get to follow subsequent generations on the planet and see what happens long after Destry is dead and how the terraforming project continues for a thousand years into the future. So we finally end the book in a period of gentrification where the planet's been completely occupied, there's cities, there's farms, and now there's a new generation of people coming in who are displacing these original terraformers. And so it's a book that's very political. It deals with all of these questions around what does it mean to take control of land? What does it mean to build, build a city? But also, it's really about these people. It's about Destry and Whistle. It's about the mentorship relationship that Destry has with the next generation of people. And finally, in the final section of the book, it's about a sentient flying train who is part of the public transit system and is trying to figure out how to be good public transit on a planet where there's haves and haves not, have nots. Yeah, I feel like the terraforming process is really fascinating because it's one of those things where like you're building a thing you won't live to see, like you're building a thing that won't be completed in your lifetime. And you're just like, one day this will be a thing that people can enjoy. But for now, I'm just I'm just helping to create it. And I find that dynamic really fascinating. And so we've talked before on our podcast and in life about like how annoying it is when there's like planets that don't feel believable, that are just kind of, you know, painted backdrop or just like, you know, a gravel quarry somewhere that just it doesn't <laughs> feel like a real planet. So what do you think makes a fictional planet actually believable and like a place that you could actually visit? 
Yeah, I thought about this a lot while I was writing. And I think for me, there's really two areas that are important. One is having diverse environments, and the other is having a realistic history. So one novel that I think about a lot is Tobias Buckel's novel Sly Mongoose, which um, I know I've discussed here before because it's such a great book. In And in that, we have the descendants of people from Earth, uh, descendants of people from the Caribbean, actually, and they are living on a planet that's kind of like Venus, where it's not really habitable on the ground because the pressure is so high. And there's this thick layer of clouds where people have set up sort of floating cities where they're living in these clouds. And they still have to mine resources from the surface of the planet. And so Bakel comes up with these really interesting ideas about how people would enter the atmosphere, how they would interact with the planet, how that would shift their culture around, how the different cities interact with each other and what kind of government they have. Um, I mean, this is something throughout Bakel's work that I think is, is great, is that he gets really deep into a realistic, physical, geological scenario, and then how that changes the lives of the people there. Um, I also really, on a, on a more fantastical note, I really love Ian M. Banks's novel, The Algebraist, which is set on a gas giant. And it's about how basically humanoids are interacting with life forms on the gas giant. And again, kind of like in Slime Mongoose, one of the problems with a gas giant is that the pressure as you get deeper into the planet is so extreme that you can't, you couldn't possibly survive as one of us squishy ape people. Um, but in the Algebraist, there's a human who has kind of befriended some of the weird, they're kind of octopus-like creatures that live deep inside this gas giant. And so the human, in order to hang out with them, has to put on this incredible pressure suit. And also, the deeper the human goes into the gas giant, the more that time itself changes. And so time is moving at a different speed outside of the gas giant. So the human is going down for much longer periods of time uh, than, than it feels like. But also, they're wearing this bulky, crazy suit. And we learn, again, about how different parts of that planet have different weather systems um, and have different kinds of uh, communities in them. So I love that. I love a, a planet that feels lived in. And I also want my planet to have history, like I said. And I think that uh, one of the best examples of this, of course, is uh, N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, where we learn all about the geological history of the planet. It's been mm -hmm. through a number of mass extinctions. It has problems with earthquakes, but it's also had problems with toxins in the environment. It's had problems with, I think, maybe asteroid strikes. I can't remember. But there's been these different phases in the planet's history that have almost wiped out civilization, and then civilization has kind of grown back in a different form. And we understand as the novels go on, how much the present-day civilization is based on these previous stages of their civilization or previous types of uh, community forming. And so that I, I just love. A couple of other shout-outs I, I would make to planets that feel believable. The planets in the show Andor, not all of them, but many of them I like because we see urban and rural areas on the mm -hmm. planets. 
Um, and that's actually kind of unusual for Star Wars, which, of course, invented Coruscant, which is the city planet, which mm-hmm. I, I feel like is completely bonkers. I, I don't believe that such a thing could possibly exist. Maybe I, if you had a super hyper advanced kind of civilization, but you need resources to run that city. So you have to have farms and you have to have rural areas. So I like that. And I also, I something that really stuck with me from Battlestar Galactica is this moment in the show where the humans have to live basically on a refugee camp planet. And the idea is the Cylons say, all right, well, if you're going to stick around and still be human, we're going to put you here and you can rebuild human life on this planet. And of course, it's, it's horrific. It's not fertile. It has all these problems. And it really reminds me um, of things that humans have done, for example, in the early 19th century in the United States with the Trail of Tears forcing tribes to go from their homes in tropical areas like Florida to Oklahoma, which has a totally different ecosystem. And they were going in winter when you can't possibly set up homes or plant anything because it's freezing. And it's it's kind of like that in in the Battlestar Galactica scenario, too, where there's just simply no way for them to start their lives again on this planet that doesn't have hospitable ecosystems. So I like that. Like, I like stories where we see the difficulties of planetary life. And it isn't like the... What, what is the Star Trek device that turns a barren planet into like oh, a Oh, the Genesis paradise. device from the Star Genesis Trek 2, device. The Come, I yeah. feel like so many of sci- so many science fiction stories about terraforming and about planets assume oh, right. that you could just have a Genesis device and it's like, boop, okay, now your planet is all green and also Spock is really horny too. Um, for yeah, some reason. it's <laughs> interesting because actually there's a there was a short story in the magazine Fantasy and Science Fiction years ago, which I wrote about on io9, where it's been, it was by Charles Coleman Finley, who later mm-hmm. became the editor of that magazine, and it was all about like people basically terraforming a planet by hand, and like how it was like this process of basically just like you know digging and moving stuff and like just backbreaking work that was going to take thousands of years. And it was just showing how it was like something that you forced people to do kind of in this, in this world where it was like, yeah, but I love, I love a planet that has like diverse ecosystems. I love Mm -hmm. like complicated planets that feel like they have a history. Like you said, something that I really, this is something I thought a lot about in my young adult books, actually, like you kind of get glimpses of this here and there where I'm like, yeah, this planet, like over here, there's like an ice desert over here. There's a swamp, you know, over here, like there's like this whole stretch of this planet. That's like boiling hot. This other planet part. That's like just, you know, a giant ocean. And, you know, at one point I actually cut this line from the second book in my trilogy where Rachel is talking to her art teacher, Naitha, who's from the planet Machveria. And Rachel's like, Oh yeah, that's the planet with the, the ice desert and night is like it's got a lot of things it's a planet you know planets have yeah. a lot of different things <laughs> that's what planets are like and i had to cut it's that like, for length but it, i liked that line i love the planet. idea of it's a, got lots it, of things yeah it's like if you know in a far future scenario if earth is still habitable you know someone who's not from earth saying like oh yeah earth that's the one with the Grand Canyon. And it's like, yeah, that's like one thing that we have (laughs) for sure. We got a lot of stuff. Yeah. No, one of the things I really liked about your novel City in the Middle of the Night is that you did such a 
great job showing us that there were all of these different ecosystems and different places where people could live. And of course, that was very extreme because it's a tidally locked planet. So there's like a sunny side and a, and a dark side. And so the environments in those two places are, are very different. But it still felt like very lived in. And it had a long history behind it, too. And I, I mean, again, unsolicited, unbiased praise. <laughs> but I, yeah, it, it, it was truly a great way of helping us understand how planets are made up of many different kinds of ecosystems. Yeah, and I had a lot of fun with that. I think I might have actually, like, I, I kind of realized after the fact that I might have overemphasized how brutally extreme those extremes might be. But it was, it was, it was really fun to, it was a thought, fun thought experiment. And it felt like a fun way of visualizing, like, how hard it would be to colonize another planet, even if it's quote unquote right for human habitation. And some of the scientists I talked to when I was doing research said, you know, there's so many ways that planets could kill us that we don't even think about that humans, like it might have the right, it might have breathable air, but we still could die instantly. I want to shout out a couple of novels that are coming out soon, actually. Meru uh, by S.B. Divya is a lot of the action takes place on an exoplanet and it feels like a very believable world with like a complex ecosystem and like you really get a feeling of what it's like to be the first human living on this exoplanet. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's such a fantastic book. Also, The Mimicking of Known Successes by friend of the podcast, Malka Older, uh, yes. is takes place on Jupiter where humans have have colonized, but they can only live like above the atmosphere in this like kind of system of of hubs. It's just, it's such a cool way of thinking about humans living on a very different world. So Annalie, bringing it back to the Terraformers, which is just such a wonderful book. You know, how is it different creating a planet in a science fiction book versus like, you know, say creating Westeros or, you know, Narnia or some other secondary world in fantasy? Yeah, it's funny that you asked that because of course, I mean, the easy answer is, if you're doing an exoplanet, even if you're terraforming it, you have to have some kind of scientific realism, right? You have to base your ecosystem and your geology on stuff that is plausible. At the same time, I've really, especially in the terraformers, taken a lot of inspiration from fantasy world building. And I think that's because, and, and obviously this isn't a universal rule, but you see a lot more ecosystem diversity in fantasy stories. You see huh. a lot more emphasis on the rural. I mean, obviously, there's a whole subgenre of urban fantasy. So that kind of assumes in a weird way that everything else isn't urban. And I think that's that was true for a very long time. And you see a lot of emphasis in fantasy on different kinds of animals, animals that have human equivalent consciousness, interactions between humans and animals. So, for example, um, you know, we talk a lot about how Star Trek inspires people to become scientists, but a lot of environmental scientists and biologists have said that they were inspired by Lord of the Rings because seeing the environments in that story and thinking about how a uh, a balanced ecosystem can be destroyed through industry or destroyed through poor land management practices. I, I hate to reduce Lord of the Rings to like, well, Sauron, <laughs> bad land manager. But there is, especially actually in um, the Rings of Power, where we see the origin of Mordor, it really is about land management to a large extent and water management. And so that I find to be 
just a really fruitful place to put my imagination. And of course, you know, Hayao Miyazaki movies like Princess Mononoke and My Neighbor Totoro and a whole bunch of other ones. Again, these are fantasy stories about magic, but they depict the natural world in a way that feels in some ways more realistic than what you might see in, for example, Star Wars, City Planet, or sometimes like <laughs> Star Trek, where it'll be like, this is the water planet, which not to not to throw shade on that, because you could actually have a water planet, but like you often get plants where it's like there's it's all tropical. And it's mm-hmm. I mean, that could happen. I mean, there were phases in Earth's development when essentially all the land masses were tropical, but that was kind of unusual. And that had to do with having like a very strange configuration of the continents. I love the idea of summarizing Lord of the Rings as just like a story about bad land management and, <laughs> you know, environmental degradation. But know. it is. And I, I really yeah. do feel like, I mean, one of the things I, I loved about Rings of Power, I actually really did love that series, um, was the fact Same. that they they made, I, I think there was a conscious effort on the part of the writers to frame that in the context of of the environment. Because again, Part of the wonder and beauty of a show like that or the movie series Lord of the Rings is seeing these untouched natural environments um, or undeveloped in the way that we develop them as people. So, you know, it's particularly heartbreaking when you see these beautiful, verdant landscapes turned into like, you know, industrial slag. Yeah, it really did feel like a gut punch. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about using actual science to create a fictional planet. So when you were building this planet, the terraformers, like, where did you start? So the planet is called Saski, uh, which is a reference to Saskatchewan, because I can't write a novel without Saskatchewan being in it somewhere. And I started at the beginning, like I called up a planetary scientist named David Catling, who studies basically how planets form atmospheres. And this is very early in the process, like, so I hadn't started writing yet. And I had originally thought that the book would start with literally the company that's making the planet, like finding the planet and like building an atmosphere. So I spent a really long time talking to poor David Catling about like, how do you build an atmosphere from scratch? And how would you find a planet? And like, what stage in the planet's development would be the ideal time to intervene? And um, he gave me all this great information that I didn't end up using in the book, because I just sort of assumed that all the stories he told me about how they did it were true. And uh, that they'd found a planet um, at a relatively middle aged star. Um, so the the sort of phases of um, planetary development, like early planetary development involves a lot of bombardment. There's a lot of like just debris in the solar system. So it you can't develop a planet if it's constantly being hit by debris. So you have to wait until the system is a little bit matured. But that planet had to have had some kind of terrible accident at some point. Maybe it smashed into another planet. And that knocked most of its atmosphere off. So it's this it's basically a rock that's like ready for terraforming. So all of that is in the past. The main thing I used that um, in the book that he told me was that he thought stretching the truth a little bit, as long as you had like futuristic hand wavy technologies, you could build an atmosphere in 10,000 years. So there are some hand wavy technologies that allowed them that's to do that. So fast. 
I know it's really fast. And he was very careful to say, like, you would have to have some technologies that don't already exist. But yeah, you could jump. What you want to do is you want to jumpstart the carbon cycle. And that's going to help you develop like an atmosphere that has the right amount of oxygen, the right amount of nitrogen, because they're building an Earth-like atmosphere. And so that's that sort of has just happened when the novel opens. They've just gotten oxygen up to about 21% and they're super psyched about it. And then I actually spent a lot of time talking to an expert in plate tectonics, Atreyi Ghosh, and she helped me think through one of the major plot points in the book, which has to do with the fact that Saski does not have plate tectonics. So if you were building a planet from scratch, everyone I talked to agreed you would not want to have plate tectonics because that's the that causes things like tidal waves and volcanoes in places that you didn't expect, and earthquakes. Here on Earth, as you may know, if you studied plate tectonics, which most of us did in school, there's a bunch of crustal plates floating around on magma on top of the planet. And these plates dive underneath each other. They crash into each other. They create mountains when they crash into each other. They create earthquakes. And they are incredibly dangerous. Like the most dangerous things that can happen to a planet generally, other than an asteroid strike come from this kind of activity. So when uh, Saski is built, the uh, real estate development company is like, you know what, we want this to be an Earth-like world, but we want it to be a happy, you know, entertaining, family-friendly Earth Earth-like <laughs> world. So we don't want to have earthquakes and things like that. So the planet does have volcanism, but because the plates aren't moving around, you know where the volcanoes are. They never change. They're always in the same place. That's um, so which is, fascinating. I mean, I never yeah. even thought, like, until I read your book, I never even thought that, oh, you could have a planet without plate tectonics. I just assumed it was, like, came standard with every planet, you know? No. And in fact, I talked to another planetary scientist who studies Venus, and she was saying that we think probably Venus doesn't have plate tectonics. It might turn out to, but it, it really doesn't look like it partly because they have these volcanic structures where the volcanoes don't move around at all. The volcanoes just have been erupting for like millions and millions of years in the same place. So that suggests that they're not, because when volcanoes move, when the plates move and the plate moves over top of the volcano, so it's the same like magma upwelling, but it's coming up in different parts of the uh, crust. So that's why you get like, chains of islands, like the Hawaiian islands, they're in this kind of beautiful arc pattern because the crust of the earth is slowly moving over the same magma upwelling and it's creating island after island as it <laughs> blows up. So anyway, so I talked to a, a lot of these folks and, and got their help in developing this uh, futuristic technology that would build a planet. Um, I talked to Kyle House, uh, a river expert who we actually had on the show talking yeah. about the Colorado River because uh, there's he a major— so great. I love him. And um, uh, so he's a geologist who studies rivers, and he helped me figure out the behavior of a giant river that runs down the center of the continent in the book. And then I also talked to, you know, folks who think about um, technology and city planning. And I had a great conversation with Jeffrey Tumlin, who's the he head of the Department of Transit here in San Francisco, about how you would just build a global system of transit um, if you could, you know, which they can. They are starting from scratch. So they're thinking about how do you connect every single city in the entire world and what's the best way to do that? And 
Um, how do you get agreement between cities about how these, these transit systems are going to run? So it's important to me, I guess, or what was important to me as I thought about this was I wanted it to be geologically accurate. I wanted it to be accurate to how ecosystems work, how sensor networks function, but also because there's a sensor network like throughout the planet. Because again, if you're going to build a planet, that's why not do that. But then I also wanted the things like transit systems to be realistic too. You know, I didn't want it to feel like, oh, you know, we have really realistic geology, but then like they just magically make a giant transit system and there's no arguments over it and nobody gets pissed about like where the train stations are and things like that. Um, Or even gets pissed about the idea of having trains because of course um, there's all these questions that come up about how having train stations kind of makes uh, real estate go down in price, um, which is actually the opposite of how it is on Earth right now. But uh, on this planet, um, you know, there's economic reasons why having train tracks might be um, encouraging the wrong sort of people to move in, you know, Dia. So, um, yeah, I mean, even on Earth, like you, you have like rich neighborhoods where there's very little public transit for on purpose. Like when I lived in mm-hmm. D.C., it was like, yeah, Georgetown, there's no metro in Georgetown because they don't want poor people to be able to come there. Yeah. You know? And that's that's one of the conflicts in the book. And a huge part of the book deals with characters who are trying to first to set up this transit network. And then, of course, it deals with one of the parts of the transit network, one of the trains uh, who has who who is sentient. All the trains are sentient because why not? And it's it was actually a huge stretch for world building to have to think about all that stuff. Yeah, and it's all the stuff that we usually skip over in novels about planetary colonization. And usually either you have people just like showing up and like setting up their dome or whatever, or Mm -hmm. you're like, in my novel, The City in the Middle of the Night, it's like, oh yeah, we've been here for like generations and we just live here now. How does it change the story when you actually kind of deal with the process of like terraforming a planet from scratch rather than just showing up on a planet that's already more or less habitable and then adjusting to it? Well, one of the big themes of this book is commercialization of real estate, right? Yes. Turning land land into property, um, which I think is probably one of humanity's worst inventions, one of the greatest crimes against nature and humans. Um, so, of course, I wanted to, <laughs> to tackle that. You know, there's a lot of great stories out there that have dealt with this already. I certainly didn't invent the idea of interstellar real estate development. I'm a huge fan of the novel The Space Merchants, which is by... Cyril Kornbluth and Frederick Pohl. And that is a story set on Earth, but it's dealing with a guy who li- who's in marketing and he's constantly seeing advertisements for uh, colonies off world. And like, you know, he sort of, you know, lives in this barrage of, of ads. But also I was thinking a lot about The Expanse, um, which is very much about colonizing the solar system and the economics behind that, as well as the politics. And I also... I love the movie Moon, um, which I feel like is kind of a modern classic. It's uh, It was written and directed by Duncan Jones, and it's basically about a guy who is essentially enslaved, whose entire job is to do mining on the moon, our, our, our moon here uh, that orbits Earth. And it's such a lonely, sad, fucked up, story. And it's basically all about how life is 
kind of wrecked when resource extraction becomes the primary reason for inhabiting any kind of place. So um, I was thinking a lot about all that stuff. And I really wanted to foreground labor, you know, the labor of maintaining a planet or building a planet. And, you know, you were saying this is the kind of stuff that we don't normally see in a terraforming story. And I think it's also, I think that's because we don't normally think about it even here on Earth. You know, we don't think about the people very often who maintain our streets, Mm -hmm. who grow and pick our food, who are building our houses, painting our houses, building freeways, driving buses, like all of the people who actually make everything run. You know, those people are kind of terraformers. You know, they're the ones who make sure that you don't fall into a pothole and that your forest doesn't burn down and consume your house. And so those are the terraformers in my novel, those those people. And part of what this book is about is a very long revolution against property owners. It takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like very much an extension of the themes of, of your first novel, Autonomous, where it's all about like first we in, in, develop this indenture category for robots and then it becomes applied to humans. And it's just like it's yeah. a slippery slope every time. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting to think about like terraforming here on Earth because, of course, we have people who are doing huge projects to try to do environmental remediation and building, you know, massive, in some cases, massive structures, massive projects to try to fix damage to the planet. But then you also have people burning down the freaking rainforest who are kind of like, in a way, anti-terraforming. They're making the planet over time less habitable to humans and, you know, threatening to turn the planet into something that we can't live on at all, which it feels like there's this weird tug of war on Earth right now between the between terraformers and anti-terraformers. And at times it feels like the anti-terraformers are winning. So it's actually one of the things that's utopian is to imagine a world where the terraformers are actually kind of in charge, even if they're not entirely doing it for pure motives in some cases. I mean, just like to have people in charge who actually give a, a crap about like making the planet habitable would be nice. I like your idea of terraformers and anti-terraformers because I I think it captures something important. But I would have a well-actually moment there and say, all of that is terraforming. You know, burning down the rainforest is a form of terraforming. And terraforming is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Like one person's, you know, negative type of terraforming is another person's positive. And there's so many science fiction stories about this, including that Doctor Who episode where the, what the heck are they called? The Vorons, the whatever, they come down to Earth and they're like filling the atmosphere with carbon because that's like, they want to terraform, they want to terraform it for them. The Santarans? Santarans! Santarans! Yeah, there have actually been a few Doctor Who monsters who tried to customize Earth's atmosphere. That's like a theme in Doctor Who. The Ice Warriors did it once, the Silurians did it once. And it goes back to War of the Worlds, which is also basically about that. So there's, I guess you could say there's like non-consensual terraforming, or there's there's terraforming that creates a world that's better for humans. And then there's terraforming that creates a world that's better for, you know, uh, Santorans or capitalist Santorans. (laughs) (laughs) Or ice warriors. Like in the Seeds of Death, the ice warriors have these like weird fungus bombs that release a gas that basically will transform Earth's atmosphere to be more like Mars. And it's like a whole freaking thing. Yeah. What I want to say is, 
I want to make a distinction. I feel like we're rat-holing, but in an interesting way, hopefully. I want to make a distinction between the ice warriors who are kind of rationally trying to convert Earth to someplace that they can live and the people burning the rainforest who maybe, obviously, they're, it's intentional, but at the same time, they are terraforming Earth into a place where humans can't live. Well, they're terraforming it into a place that's good for capitalism. And in the short the f- term, which is all that capitalism thinks about. Well, that's what I mean is and there is, you know, I think a sense of futurism there where they're thinking like, well, rich people will all be always be able to survive because we'll have our, you know, uh, climate controlled habitats fueled by all of this wood that we've <laughs> harvested um, and all of this coal that we've harvested um, and, and extracted. And so who cares? You know, like we'll, we'll always be able to survive. So it doesn't really matter. It's, I think when we think about terraforming, ultimately we have to say terraforming in the name of what? Why are we terraforming? Yes. Are we doing yes. it for the, for the ice warriors? Are we doing it for capitalists? Are we, or are we doing it for the ecosystems that are here now that we hope to have survive for as long as possible? Yes, exactly. You totally put your finger on it. Like, what's the what's the goal? Who benefits? So, mm-hmm. like, actually, that's a good way to think about, like, the next thing I want to ask you, which is, like, oftentimes... And we obviously just did an episode about Avatar, which kind of deals with this a lot. Oftentimes when you visit another planet um, in science fiction, it's a metaphor for something about Earth or something about human interaction on Earth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a long tradition of that going back to Dune, going back, I would say, to, you know, John Carter of Mars on a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin's novels and some of Samuel Delaney's early work. So in your in the terraformers, do you see Saski as a metaphor for something to do with Earth or our history? I was thinking about some types of land use on Earth that I wanted to basically make fun of in this novel. There, There's a bit of satire here of things like Disneyland and Disney World. There is a real estate company that swoops in and buys a bunch of land that basically is trying to create kind of a cross between Disney World and an ecotourist resort. And Ah. they have set up their large land area so that when you enter it, you have to um, agree to license their media exclusively while you're there for entertainment. And they will also be able to use things that you do in the space to produce media. And all of the buildings are branded with their characters and All of the games that are available, of course, are their games. And it's kind of like going into a bar where there's a two-drink minimum. Like when you enter their area, there's like a minimum that you have to spend on their media products, whatever those are. So I was really concerned about making fun of the Disneyfication of, of environments. And I also, of course, was thinking a lot about the colonization of the Americas. I mean, I grew up in the United States, um, surrounded by ill-gotten land, um, live on ill-gotten land. I grew up on stories of the Wild West, um, which were all basically completely made-up propaganda from white settlers. And a lot of the story in The Terraformers is about that made-up propaganda and how it works to get people to buy things. This is not a story like Avatar, where they get to the planet and there are already existing indigenous people there or anything. It's just a rock um, as much as possible. It was a rock. And so instead, I'm thinking about 
waves of workers, you know, waves of terraformers who've come in and have made the land hospitable. And then what happens to them when the property owning class comes in and is like, oh, this is our land. And the terraformers are like, but I built it. (laughs) And so that kind of process of like ownership of the land forcibly being handed off to a new group uh, is something, I don't know if that's metaphorical, but I just find it to be a super interesting story and very, very plausible based on what I've seen in the land I live in, um, in California. So I wanted to show all that stuff, but I also wanted to show, like you said, a lot of hope and I Mm -hmm. wanted my characters to feel joy. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I feel like one of the things about stories about revolution, especially in a very dystopian world where everyone is property and there's this, you know, corporation that's controlling everything. It's easy to kind of get stuck in this like grim meat hook future (laughs) and, and not remember that, you know, many times in earth history have been just as oppressive and people have found time to party. They've found ways of connecting with each other And that's really what helps us overcome systemic oppression, I think. I mean, obviously organizing and and having political resistance, but I think the smallest unit of that resistance is our friendships and our trust for one another. And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, my characters, like, they, they do go to parties, they get drunk, they go to an amazing cosplay um, performance that I hope people will enjoy. And I made sure that, People got to fall in love. You know, the moose got to fall in love. The flying train gets to fall in love with a really awesome cat. Oh, my and God. I love it. There's characters who who fall in love and get together that you would definitely not expect. And by the end, you'll <laughs> be very excited that they found each other. And I just I think that revolution without romance is just not a story that I want to tell, especially if you're in it for the long haul. If you're having a slow mm-hmm. revolution that takes 1,500 years, um, you've got to fall in love along the way. Uh, otherwise, you lose sight of what you're fighting for. So. I feel like Emma Goldman would approve. Emma Goldman would probably approve. Um, and, you know, so would generations of queer people who partied secretly in order to have love in times of oppression. So, Hell yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to to wrap up. Yeah, so thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. Remember, Woo! you can find us, yeah, you can find us on Patreon and please do support us. We're at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. Um, we're on Mastodon at ouropinions at wandering.shop. And you can find us on TikTok and Instagram. And thank you so much to our incredible producer, Veronica Simonetti, who puts up with all of our microphone problems (laughs) and like our inability to like stop saying um. Thank you so much to Chris Palmer for the music. And we will talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye. Bye. We're going to take the month of February off to... Do some housekeeping, do some relaxing, and we will be back in March with brand new episodes. And in the meantime, we're going to post a couple of our favorite classic episodes, and we'll see you in March.